welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Here you can see we're at the Port Arthur Refinery. I could begin to see some frack towers, the different cooling towers, um, and begin to see some of the emissions associated with that different flares and, and stacks and spherical tanks and what we're dealing with. And then with a click of a button, I'm back out looking at it essentially in satellite view. Jed Anderson is the founder of Enviro AI, a company working at the intersection of artificial intelligence and environmental compliance. Today, he is showing me around the Motiva Port Arthur refinery in Port Arthur, Texas. It's an experience that, mere years ago, would have required a plane ticket, a drive, and probably a bribe to get on company property. Today, the tour is taking place virtually, and completely above board, as I sit in Washington, D.C., and Jed in Houston, Texas. Jed's team is using AI to create algorithms that can scrape data from all corners of the internet regarding emissions at these facilities. They have then created a virtual world where users can walk through the facilities, click on buildings and other key infrastructure, and see detailed information about their impact on the environment. In today's episode, we are concerned with environmental compliance. How can we leverage the sophisticated pattern recognition capabilities implicit in AI technology to better monitor emissions? The Environmental Law Institute recently authored a report entitled Environmental Intelligence, Advancing Environmental Compliance, Enforcement, and Follow-Up Programs. This report was prepared for the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada and concerned how governments can better integrate AI into their workflows to improve monitoring. Environmentally, before I go to a site or if I'm doing an inspection or an audit, you know, before I can go down there, I just kind of want to go down there and have a little bit of a virtual and actual tour of the facility, what it looks like. Eventually, Georgia will be able to use machine learning to pick out, for example, where there's white steam, you know, if there's particulates in that or not, just from some of this uh, footage that we're getting using machine learning. So you can kind of get the idea of, again, beginning to actually go into these facilities and walk around these facilities and see what's happening and seeing the environmental data that's happening um, related to those facilities. So, for example, if I I'm looking here at the stock stack process heater. And I can click on this and find out how much emissions are associated with it. So here's the amount of permitted emissions that they have annually and hourly, as well as what their actual emissions are. My name is George Ray, and I am your host. In today's episode, I will speak with Jed about the work his company has been doing, largely in the private sector, and tackle difficult questions about how this innovation can be used in a government setting. In addition to his work tracking emissions from polluting facilities, the company is also developing an environmental search engine and an app that allows prospective home buyers to assess the environmental concerns nearby potential properties. We will also talk about how these initiatives intersect with the work ELI is currently doing. Before we get into the interview, let's listen in to a little more audio of Jed walking us around this virtual facility. We can begin to geolocate that data in space and be able to go into the actual refinery itself. And you can see all essentially the data begin to populate into that system and be able to walk around the refinery. So here's all the documents that are coming in as of an hour ago related to the facility, 
the deviations about that facility, permits, emission events related to that particular unit, and then we can begin to essentially dive into the details. So if I was out here doing an inspection or I just wanted to do an audit or I wanted to invite you like I am Georgia right now to kind of like a Teams meeting, like you and I can almost essentially go into the facility. Eventually when we're, uh, we have the AR and VR capabilities, uh, we can become a little bit more metaverse-like and really dive into this. But even now you can see we can start to pull ourselves into the data itself and begin to take a look at a whole new level of way of experiencing data by being able to do actual work and be able to collaborate in that digital space. Let's start with the audio our listeners were hearing at the top of the episode. You were walking me through a couple of different refineries in Texas. How is that possible? How did you get this data? So all this data is public data that we've obtained either through the various state agencies or from the federal government or from other private sources, such as Google and Yahoo and other research um, institutes. So it's public information. And uh, then the imagery that uh, we're of course getting from Google and other sources. So it's just amazing the power that we can gain through public information. It really is using some of these machine learning tools to be able to leverage that data to find connections and find ways to better protect the environment using those, uh, those digital or, or data points. And you talk about machine learning, but to give our listeners some background, you are actually a lawyer by training and you even wrote a book on the Clean Water Act. So how did you find yourself here? Yeah, I found myself here, uh, Georgia. I was uh, working for a refinery trying to find them better permit conditions. And the only way I could do that was to download each PDF document at a very expensive uh, billable rate uh, per hour. And it was uh, frustrating. It was costing the company, I thought, too much money. And so I took a a course on natural language processing uh, through Stanford and learned a little bit about scraping. And so we were able to use the agency files and do some advanced natural language processing. And Georgia, my work went from about 50 hours to two hours. Uh, So when you uh, can reduce your time and efficiency by that much, you quickly realize that you're replacing yourself as an attorney. Or I shouldn't say replacing, that you're augmenting yourself as an attorney, Uh, just because this brain can only store so much information and process it. And so if we can use some of these new digital technologies like machine learning to be able to collect that data faster so that our brains can access it faster and be able to do the creative and imaginative and the hard thinking work that uh, we're capable of doing. That's what I was really intrigued about and, and why I really started to enter into something that, that um, I thought had never really been entered into before, which is collecting this data and, and really being able to use it fast and quick. Yeah, and I know another difference between your early career and this latter part of your career is your early career took place in more of the policy space. And now you've been working more closely with different industry partners. So as someone has that's existed in both of these different work environments, how do you see the differences? I, I see them actually as, as fairly similar. You know, when I was trying to change uh, the, the, the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, I was really trying to simplify I saw a lot of needless complexity in the system. And so I thought by making quicker, better, simpler laws that we could really effectuate policy much faster. But when I saw some of these tools advance, I, I, I thought that the ability to essentially obviate the need for them 
by creating essentially digital tools that are protecting the environment in real time might be a faster way to essentially protect the environment. And then the need for the complex laws and regulations starts to go away. So in many respects, this is just an ongoing effort of of me to try and really find ways to simplify the way that we protect the environment. When you talk about that need for simplification, that seems to me to fly in the face of really all that government often stands for as a very bureaucratic system. So how can we leverage the simplicity of these AI technologies for government? So the government's in a unique position. They have so much data and the ability essentially to provide that data to the public so that more people can access it to use some of these new tools that are advancing. I think that would be one of the quickest ways that the government could really empower people and empower the public to utilize this information to help better protect the environment. I think that that is in government's best interest as well in terms of leveraging public resources and public monies and uh, public-private sector opportunities to, to make this powerful. Once these essentially are created, more information is provided creating essentially laws and rules that are more algorithm, that allow for flexibility, that have a hard and fast fast rule in terms of what we're holding people accountable to, but don't necessarily provide the specific delineated means how to get there. That will be helpful to people, especially again, as we're using more machine learning, more algorithms to achieve environmental compliance. And as I see you walk through these facilities, obviously the impetus for our conversation today is a report that ELI wrote focusing on AI technologies for environmental compliance. So as we walk around these facilities, that's top of mind for me and looking at how these emissions can be tracked. Is this something you see governments adopting in the near future, in the far future? Is this the new way? Are we all going to be using this kind of technology to monitor emissions? Yes, we will all be using this, this type of technology. Uh, with remote sensing, um, all the trends are with satellites, uh, with cheap sensors coming online, the ability to use these and use these uh, even offsite are becoming a, a lot more ubiquitous. And so I, I think that, that moving forward, that capability is just continuing to grow and grow and grow. And then our ability to use, again, machine learning tools, to find um, intelligence in that data and each of us be able to help and assist with the compliance efforts, that's really going to be part of the future. And you spoke about the historical data and governments providing more open data as a big way they can get involved. But in our report, we did find a lack of historical data for these different government entities as a problem for adopting these strategies. Is this something, you know, the data scraping could help with? Is it just it's out there and it's hard to find? Yeah, so I, I certainly a data scraping, I think, can, can help with that. A lot of it, though, is just digitalizing the information that they have. Some of this is just backlogged in papers, sitting in, in uh, Quonset huts and so forth. So part of it is, is uh, finding the dollars, essentially, to uh, there's a lot of data and there's a lot of power in history. And, and uh, so making sure those documents are preserved, that knowledge, that expertise, all the people that poured a, a lot of their lives into those documents and, and sh- ensuring that they have a legacy and uh, can be leveraged into the future, I think, is, is uh, worth an effort. 
Yeah. And you just talked about one of the things that I wanted to talk about, which is finding the money or funding. So definitely a lack of funding for these type of projects is a problem for many agencies and also the knowledge base to make these tools effective. How do you see governments or private industries solving for this deficit in funding or lack of knowledge? The challenge is that, that we have a, a regulatory system that's, that's based essentially on hard and fast rules and not necessarily these, these new technological digital data tools. When the Clean Water Act and Clean Air Act kind of came around, uh, the computer really hadn't been invented. And so now that uh, this, this, this new technology is here, it, it's going to be, I, I think, a, a challenge. But I think the best way to do it is uh, for the private sector as well as the government to just charge forward with utilizing some of these two uh, new technologies don't necessarily worry about how they fit within the current regulatory structure. I think that will come later. But if they focus primarily on improving the environment, if that becomes the focus, Georgia, if if improving the environment becomes the focus, not necessarily did I comply with this old 1970s law, that will drive change. And so that's what I would encourage both the private sector as well as agencies to look at is, What's the best way to protect the environment? And oftentimes that's going to lead toward these new technologies that may not fit necessarily within the current regulatory paradigm. But once they're utilized, then I think going back and stepping back and saying, hey, what's the regulatory or other structure that needs to change to allow for this technology to be acknowledged and and move forward? That, that That will be helpful. Yeah, that goal-oriented mindset is definitely something we're hearing a lot about in many aspects of you know, climate governance right now. At the same time, I have to think about those regulatory changes that will eventually be made. Do you have any ideas of how regulation could best account for this new technology? I think the best way would be to, to uh, you know, oftentimes when we need to simplify our lives, we need to remove things. We need to remove all the vines that have tangled around the tree. And that's what, in many respects, has happened with, with regulatory infrastructure and so forth. So I think, but, but if, we, if we focus on, like you said, Georgia, the results, uh, once we get to the results, if the results eventually show that all of the vines aren't needed, I think the vines become unnecessary. So I'll give you one example, Georgia. There are still rules on the rule books about horses and carriages. There's still laws about this. They're not needed anymore. And I think the same thing will be true about the environment. I think the government and I think uh, the private sector is going to charge so fast forward with some of these technologies that a lot of these laws and rules will just become unnecessary. There'll be old horse and buggy rules that none of us need to follow because we don't use horses and buggies anymore. I like that analogy. As a case study, our report looked at the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada, and much of your work has focused on the American South and in private industry, as you stated, places like Texas and Louisiana. How hard would it be to retrofit these algorithms that you're using to a new regulatory framework, a new industry like the one in Canada? Very easy. Essentially, natural language processing is natural language processing. It can jump from Swahili to French. And so uh, making that jump, it all is bits. At the end of the day, everything is a bit. It's a zero or a one. 
whether it's language, whether it's atoms, whether it's molecules, it's a zero or one. And getting into the next realm of quantum, everything essentially is a is a qubit, right? It's a, it's a probability wave function that we're dealing with. So really these ideas, as well as these tools that are advancing quantum computing, machine learning, data is data. Whether you're making a salad, whether you're making chemicals, whether you're protecting the environment, it really, uh, I see the, the future advancing that quickly. And that feeds in nicely to my last question, which is what is the future for AI in environmental compliance? I, I, I think at the end of the day, between remote sensing and machine learning, that is going to be doing the bulk of the work when it comes to protecting the environment. If you think of the environment or if you think of it, uh, protecting the environment is as simple as a thermostat, it almost is essentially that, is that we'll need to pick out what we want to set the thermostat at. But in terms of how that thermostat is adjusted, it will likely be machinery that's doing a lot of that between remote sensing and machine learning. But, but they'll, they'll, it'll require some imagination, some creativity, as well as then some judgment and some decision-making by all of us about what we want to set that, that thermostat at. That makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and offering all of these insights. It was very interesting. Thank you, George. Appreciate it. Now that we've heard from Jed and talked about this most recent environmental compliance report, I wanted to give a little more context for the work that ELI has done in the artificial intelligence space more broadly. In general, we are working to promote conversation between innovators and regulators as it pertains to environmental innovation. Our first AI-centered report, entitled When Cars Lie, was published in 2017 and authored by visiting scholar and technology and innovation lab founder, Dave Rajewski. It broke down how several car manufacturers used AI to deceive consumers and regulators about their vehicles' emissions. This paper highlighted how AI programs intended to improve the environment can also introduce vulnerabilities based in manipulation by the people and algorithms that drive them. It was clear an upstream form of governance for environmental AI programs needed to be developed. This resulted in several more reports focused on developing formal and semi-formal governance in the field. In two papers, Governing AI, the Importance of Environmentally Sustainable and Equitable Innovation, and When Software Rules, Rule of Law in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, ELI's team of researchers and collaborators provided an overview of the history of governance in the environmental AI program space and potential roadmaps for moving forward. We have also completed work regarding AI and environmental compliance. In a paper entitled Environmentalism in the Next Machine Age, the importance of embedding environmental learning into algorithms for environmental compliance efforts, urban design projects, supply chain management, and government planning is discussed. The benefits of environmental learning in these programs remain unrealized. Heavy investment to fund initial research in this space could encourage policymakers to respond quickly to the opportunity for streamlined environmental learning in all aspects of society. The ELI team has also discussed the critically important concern of bias in AI development, ethical considerations, and monitoring and evaluation of those values incorporated into AI programs. The organization is currently moving forward with plans to explore the intersection between AI bias in environmental governance and environmental justice. 
ELI will continue to participate in supporting these research efforts and facilitating bridging the gap between environmental innovation and policy. To learn more about these topics, ELI's Green Tech Initiative, and other work of the ELI Innovation Lab, please visit our website at www.eli.org backslash innovation lab. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at eli.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.